Today's guest is digital business manager and info product wizard, Dea. Dea started as a VA and grew her skill set to grow into project management roles before being a highly sought after digital business manager. Dea also runs her own business teaching others to learn from her mistakes and become a DBM on their own. Join us as we discuss what exactly a DBM does, how to get started in the industry with very little experience, and her own experience running an info product business. Enjoy the show. Dea, um, thank you so much for coming to the podcast today. We are really just excited to talk to you and be able to kind of share your story and expertise in the freelancing and kind of digital business industry. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Perfect. So the first thing that I want to talk with you today is more on freelancing. You know, our audience is fairly young. They're going to school. They just graduated sort of situation. And a lot of them, you know, might not do what their major was or might not know exactly what they want to do long term in their future. And so freelancing is a great option, um, as you know, to kind of get started on your own. And so just talk about for people that don't understand what is freelancing um, and then how you can kind of build a skill set to then raise, um, as people say, your hourly worth or raise that you can charge clients um, to really kind of be the beginning of uh, an entrepreneurial journey in a way. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great big question. So yeah, I'm definitely one of the more biased people, I guess, towards uh, freelancing. I think everyone should be a freelancer. And I think the younger you can start freelancing, the better. Um, Because I think this is just kind of like a big picture thing. I feel like there's so much pressure to pick one thing starting already from a very young age. And then in like college, you have to pick one thing. After college, you have to pick one path and then like kind of follow it until you retire. I think that's like what we're always taught. And I think freelancing is such a good alternative when you are younger, when you are not sure what to do, because freelancing gives you this option to try everything. And that's also always my advice for like people who want to dip their toes into it or they're like, how should I start? How should I pick a niche? I'm like, forget about the niche. Just start by trying everything. Like in the first phase, it's all about experimentation. Say yes to anything that sounds remotely interesting, remotely like I could probably figure that out. Like I could Google that and figure that out. Try everything because then you have the data to then figure out slowly what might make sense for you. And if you ever do want to go back to, I don't know, pursue something corporate or something, then you have so much more data to be like, you know what, I think this is something I would really like, you know, if you did want to do that. Um, But that's why I think freelancing is such a good option when you're younger because it gives you such a risk, I would say risk-free, low barrier way to try so many different things. Uh, Exactly what I did when I started as well. I did go to university, but out of university, I feel like very similar story to most people. I had no clue what I wanted to do. Even through university, I had like seen so many different subjects. I was still like, still no idea what I wanted to do. I feel like I didn't really see, see how it would look like to work in specific roles. And so I was like, okay, let me just like try out an internship, I guess. Then, then I'll get like a little bit more information during that time. I realized, okay, the corporate path is not never, like I could not fathom doing that for 40 years. I couldn't fathom doing that for six months. So I was like, I need to try something else. And that's when I first started looking into freelancing and essentially freelancing is, Yeah, it's a good question. What exactly it is? I would just say it is you are essentially self-employed. You get to you have a lot of power around decisions of who I want to work with, when I want to work, where I want to work. That's all your responsibility, which is amazing. It's kind of a double edged sword. It's like great for people who want that flexibility, want that freedom. You're not tied to just one, you know, employer who tells you exactly what to do, when to do it, how to do it. Um, And so that's kind of the good side. The bad side, of course, is that you have to you know, do that, do that heavy lifting of like when I'm going to work, where I'm going to work, finding clients and all that stuff. So 
It's essentially what it is. It can look like lots of different things. It can look like having two to three big clients and you're a freelancer. It can look like having five to 10 small clients and you're a freelancer. Um, some of these clients might be small businesses. So people who need, I don't know, a couple hours of help per week. Some of these people might be huge businesses. I've worked with seven figure businesses as a freelancer where they essentially needed me almost close to full time. And that's how it worked out. So it, it's very flexible to you. Like sometimes people ask me, you know, how many hours do I have to work as a freelancer? I'm like, it really depends on you. It really depends on who, like who your target client is and what that setup looks like. Um, you can really configure it to work around your preferences, which is something I'm a big proponent of is like life first, then work, like work should fit around your life, not your life should fit around your work. Um, but yeah, so that's what I would say freelancing is. It's essentially you are self-employed, nobody employs you. You can kind of pick and choose how many clients you wanna work with. You can decide, it's within your right to decide when you wanna do your work, how you wanna do it, um, a lot of flexibility. Um, but yeah, that's, that's also like the biggest advice I have for people that are thinking about starting freelancing um, when they're younger, when they're not 100% sure yet what exactly they wanna do, like that's why you should freelance because you can try everything. So when I first started, like I mentioned, straight out of university, no clue what I wanted to do, literally no clue. Um, I was like, let me just go on Upwork and I'll just apply to anything that sounds remotely interesting. I also really didn't have any work experience. So I was like, let's see if people will pay me money. You know, like I had, I, I didn't even have a portfolio. I didn't have testimonials. I really had nothing going for me. So <laughs> I don't know where that bravery came from back then. I'm like really proud of her that she was like, I'm just gonna try, you know? Um, and so I applied to everything. Like I was doing like, I did like random Photoshop things where I like showed a Photoshop like backgrounds out of like industrial refrigerator stuff for like some big company that manufactured those. I did voiceovers. I voiceovered an entire Forex course and I knew nothing about Forex. Like that course was like on Upwork. I was like voiceover credits and everything. It's so random. Um, I did a bunch of like English sentence writing for uh, a Chinese company that needed to make like English materials for their students and everything. I did like customer support, admin, really just anything. And very quickly when you do that, you realize what you like, sure, but most importantly, what you absolutely hate. And that's so powerful in steering you the correct way. Um, so I was like, hate that, hate that, don't like that, never wanna do that again. And then randomly I found this job on Upwork that was like project management, like help me find course creators and like manage the process of like putting, helping them put together a course um, for this virtual reality course platform, very ahead of its time. <laughs> um, and so I was like, that sounds interesting. I could probably figure that out, you know? So I tried that, loved it, found it super interesting. And I was like, okay, let me now like just pivot a little and see like if I can find more gigs that are similar to this. Started applying to more of those things, essentially being like people's right hand, helping them manage their products, their projects. Even if that was just like one project, like if somebody was like, I wanna make an online course, I like I kind of help them manage that entire process um, or a little bit more, like more projects, stuff like that. And that's how I found like my first, like this could be the thing for me, you know, like when you like feel that click of the puzzle pieces and that's how it unraveled. Like it's not, I feel like a lot of times it's portrayed as like, you're gonna like magically know your thing. Like it's gonna like come magically to you. Like it was not magical. Like it was like test, 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 bouncing around everywhere. And then I was like this thing potentially, I explored that curiosity. And then um, I started signing clients as like their project manager. And then very naturally when you are project managing for small businesses, they start handing you a lot more things. So my clients were like, hey, you're like already managing this project. Why don't you like manage that one too? Like, why don't you handle that one too? Oh, I wanna do a new product. Do you wanna help me with that? I was like, 
a yes person. I was like, yep, yep, yep. Sounds great. Sounds exciting. I can't wait to learn. They were like, oh, I'm actually thinking about hiring someone. You want to help me hire? I'm like, love to do that. They're like, do you want to manage the team once we build it? I would love to do that. They were like, we need systems. We need like, you know, automations in the back end. We need somebody to see like the big picture of how like the big system works together and all the subsystems. I was like, love that. I, I love systems. So I was like, this is my jam. And so I kind of like picked up all these things just by saying yes um, to my clients. And then I put it all into a role. And that was the role that I was like, I'm good. Like, this is it, you know, digital business management. And that's what I did for like five years as a full-time freelancer. That's the super long story, long version. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it seems like so many people have the path where they go internship, internship, and then role, or they go to med school and they have to do residency and they go to their role or being a lawyer, they have to, you know, work up to being in that position. And there's not many opportunities for that really kind of in the corporate world or really just in the online space. But it seems like you found your own path and gave yourself permission to truly seek out those opportunities because people are afraid oftentimes to, of course, first of all, fail. Like they don't want to start something and be like, oh, I'm terrible at this and I also hate it. Like that's something that it's not fun. It's a process that's necessary, but not fun. And the the best piece of advice I got from Gary Vee, um, like four or five years ago when I was in high school, was he said, just taste everything. It's He's like, it's not a bad thing if you try something and don't like it, but so much better than just doing nothing with your time and just start something. And then if it doesn't go well, great, you know, that doesn't work well. And so move on. And so, I mean, of course, I'm glad and it's amazing that you found kind of your fit, but there's so many paths that people can find um, to that di different roles in different areas. But my question for you is, so that path from freelance to, to DBM and just in general, like you're focusing on systems and like operational things. Are there other avenues? I know you have like a very specific one you're able to go other ways that you see people being able to grow into that role, whether it be from the corporate space or from just acquiring the skills. I know you run um, exactly like a DBA boot camp to help people learn those skills, but where do you think like, is there a right path that you need to go or the best one to get those skills or does it really matter? Um, yeah, good question. I feel like it doesn't super matter if it sounds interesting and you're curious enough about it. I think if you're curious enough, you will find a way, like one way or another to learn the skills, whether that is through like a structured program, whether that is through just Googling, because essentially like a lot of people ask me like, do you need a course to start doing XYZ? I'm like, no, things just take a little bit longer. So if you have that time, especially when you're younger, you have that time and you maybe don't have as much money. Cause like when I got out of university at the internship, I, I was making minimum wage. I had basically, all I had was like time on the weekends, right? So I was like, I'm just gonna put in the time. I don't have the money, so I'll put in the time um, to just figure this out and learn it uh, by myself, which is very doable. You can learn most things online. Like we're very privileged to live in a, in a world where the internet exists and you can literally YouTube anything and Google anything. Um, people still don't take full advantage of that. So I think you can learn it on your own. It's obviously faster if you learn from like a structured program and everything. Um, but yeah, I, I actually, I, so most of the people that go through my program, they they tend to be either from the corporate world where they already have a bit of experience and now they just want to kind of do it on their own terms. So they don't want to start, let's say, as a virtual assistant because they already have a lot of experience. So that's like some of my students are that and then they just transition over and there are a lot of skills they can transition easily over um, into the digital business world. And then the other group that I tend to have in my course are virtual assistants. Virtual assistants are amazing they make amazing business managers because virtual assistants for the most part are already doing so many things that 
I call them sometimes like mini DBMs because they're already like, because, you know, it's just so natural in like small businesses that clients are like, can you do this? Can you do that? And they like kind of throw everything at you. And VAs are amazing. They just say yes to everything. Um, And I'm like, a lot of times I'm having conversations with them. I'm like, you're already managing their business. Like you just need to swap out your title and like have this talk about salary reevaluation because you're no longer doing execution work. You're doing management and strategy work now. And it's time to like make that shift. So yeah, lots of different paths. Uh, those are just the paths that I most commonly see. Yeah. When I, when I first heard about like DBM and, and OBM and how it all worked, I was so intrigued because I realized at first I was like, oh, in order to be kind of that entrepreneur, that, that person that is really working on a business and helping it grow, it's like, you need to be like a founder. You need to be like the visionary. But there is this case where you're able to help that visionary and you don't have to take as much of the risk that they kind of put forth and having to like, hey, everything relies on me, everything, if I don't perform, everything can go downhill. Um, so talk to me about like your experience there. Of course, you've been on both sides of the coin now, but how is it learning under like someone else's dime and being able to use that as a chance to grow um, your own skills? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's so relevant for me because when I first started, actually, I've never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I'm not somebody like I'm very, very risk averse. I'm very. Yeah, I just never wanted to be the face. I don't find that I've never really found that super interesting. And so being a business manager was the perfect fit because I got to do everything I wanted, manage businesses, see the big picture, really have tons of impact on like revenue and my, you know, my client's happiness. And, and to some degree, like after a few years, I really felt I was next to the CEO. Like I wasn't underneath them. It was almost like a partnership. Like they trusted me, they respected me so much. And I've had clients tell me like, I could not run this business without you, you know, and that is such an impactful thing to have without, like you said, having to kind of be the person who shoulders all the burden, who is the face, who is the personal brand, who has to be out there constantly, you know, doing all of that, you know, PR stuff like podcasts and interviews, networking. I really am not a huge fan of networking. Um, So like, it's the best because like you kind of just get to pick what you like to do and then kind of let go of everything else. Um, So it is totally a balance between the visionary and essentially the integrator. Um, and I think it's such a unique partnership where each person can lean into their interests because most of my clients don't like doing the management of their business. Like that's something I talk to my students a lot about because I'm like a planner, I'm very type A. So my bias is like, everybody loves planning things because I love planning things, right? <laughs> like a lot of my students are like, yeah, but like, don't they want to do that? I'm like, no, like, wait till you talk to founders. Like they hate it. You know, like so many of my clients are like, this is, I did not start a business to have to manage the business. You know, they started the business to do the big vision, to build the big vision, to have the impact, to be the face, to be the person out there spreading their mission and all that stuff. Like the behind the scenes stuff, they just want somebody trusted to handle it. A lot of them are like this. So Yeah, I think it's a really nice partnership. I think both people can lean into their own interests, their own strengths and balance each other out. So yeah, it's really, really impactful for both, both sides. Yeah. When I, so I've worked in sales for the past year or so, um, remotely. And when I first got into like an appointment setting role, I was like, oh, most of the business or a lot of the business isn't even fulfillment of like the info product space. Like so much of it is client acquisition, getting people in the funnel, creating content for those people. And I was so intrigued because I was like, oh, forever, I thought this was a business 
that taught someone it was like a, a lifestyle course that saw, taught someone xyz and then was leading towards a transformation yes that's the goal but so much of the time of the founder and then the employees underneath them was spent purely just prospecting purely just on sales calls purely doing all these things um creating a webinar creating content that you know when you start a business or when you start that youtube channel or something and you're like oh i just want to help people you don't think about that. And so I'm very curious of what you think the best way to, or the the best kind of marriage of those two individuals and the partnership of like the visionary and then the great um, kind of manager, what does that look like? And how do you know if like it's a right fit? Because of course the business model is important. And if you like what that business is, but this is a person you're gonna be spending a lot of time with and interacting with. So how do you know it's a right fit um, long-term and look for that ahead of time? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I feel like a lot of it just has also to do with like a vibe check. I, that's like the, the best way I can think of to describe it. Like I've talked to a lot of CEOs and founders and discovery calls and like networking and also now as a founder myself and everything. And I feel like very quickly you can tell if there is, um, gel, like if you guys balance each other in some way shape or form um or if it's like oh it's not super it's not a super good fit i think a lot of it has to come down to one um or for me at least i'm just going to speak for me for me it has a lot to do with do i believe in them as a person do i believe in their vision um if i don't it's going to be really really rough uh for me to be able to do my best work because you know like when you manage a business, you're really putting 100% of your like brain power into it. You want to make sure you're doing it for something. You're like, this is really incredible and I'm really excited to be here. So for my side, it's that. It's like, do I believe in this person? Do I believe in the vision? Um, do I believe that this person has the emotional maturity and emotional intelligence to work with me in the way that I need, that I want to be worked with? Because a lot of founders, they hire business managers, um, and I mean, obviously most founders have like weaknesses. I have weaknesses too. Some founders have weaknesses that make it impossible to work with as like a fractional COO or as a business manager, where let's say for example, they want to micromanage everything. They have a big control issue. They want to make sure that they see everything um, and that they have the last say on absolutely everything. This is very normal, like as a starting point, but if a CEO does not understand the importance of releasing the control bit by bit and allowing the business manager to have their back and to take it like slowly away from them, then you're going to have a really rough time. So I think on that sense, it's like, I have to believe in them. I have to believe in the vision. I need to believe that they are willing to do what it takes to work with me harmoniously. Um, and yeah, and trust, like there needs to be big trust because when you're managing someone's business, it's all about trust. Like they need to trust that I've got their back and that I'm not gonna let anything fall through the cracks. And I need to trust that they are willing to do the stuff on the front end, the sales, the networking, all of that kind of stuff um, to carry the business forward, you know, and to bring leads into the business. So long answer, but yeah, those things. <laughs> yeah, completely. It's, it's so interesting. And then I'm sure a lot of it also is setting expectations and having those conversations early. So it's not an issue later. It's like, hey, this is what I'm expecting because founders respect people who are also confident in themselves because they are the person that like no one believed in them to some degree or whatever. And so they want someone to come in and say, hey, like I'm going to do this for you, but you have to trust me and make sure this is okay. Okay. Versus like, 
yeah, I think I'll be good. Like, I just need a little time to figure out the business. Like, someone that knows what they're doing and is confident in themselves, they're like, got it, you're good. Versus like, oh boy, this person, I don't know. Like, it's important to, I think, have that. Of course, the skills matter and you have to know that versus saying like, yeah, totally. And you have no idea what you're doing. Um, but that conversation, I think, is is super important. Yeah, you, you have to, a business manager has to be, a serious person. Like I will say that they need to understand the weight of the responsibility that they are given. And I always talk about like, this is the difference between delegation and ownership. Delegation is when you give somebody something and it's still your responsibility to make sure it gets done. So it's like, you know, a lot of CEOs is kind of a small tangent, but um, a lot of CEOs like hire a bunch of VAs and then they're like, but now it's even more work. Like now I have to manage all these VAs and I need to make sure they're all getting it done and I need to review everything. It's like, that's delegation. You're like giving things away. It's still on your plate to make sure things get done. However, when you hire a business manager, you are giving ownership to that business manager to say, now it's on your plate. You're going to make sure it gets done and you're going to double check it and you're going to come to me only if there's a big issue or if you have a question that I need to answer. And that's a huge difference between hiring lots of small people on your team that you still have to manage versus hiring somebody like a business manager who can manage a team, who can manage a project, who is sitting on the same level as you, who can take ownership. And you know, for a lot of my clients, essentially, I treated their business as if it were my own. That's how much ownership I took. I was like, this is my business. I wanted to succeed. And um, what would I do if this was my business? So yeah, I think you need that person who, who takes it quite seriously. It's like the difference between a board game where you're looking over the pieces and you're moving them and like then just setting up like some simple machine to do a task. And you're like, okay, cool. And then you walk away and do your own thing. Like it's because that person that's looking over the board is like, oh, that per- that's not moving there right. And they have to move it and adjust it where they're never really focusing on maybe what they should be as like high level tasks of that visionary CEO individual. They're so focused on like these little things that they can't even do the best work that they need to. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The profit generating work, which a lot of CEOs like get so stuck in working in the business that they don't work on the business, which as a CEO, your top priority should be working on the business because if nobody's working on the business, like the business is going to be rowing in like all different directions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious because you've both learned skills pre DBM and being an entrepreneur. And then you've also had to learn skills along the way. I'm sure. What did you learn on the job of being a DBM that was most valuable in when you decided to build your own course and build your own kind of platform in itself that translated the best to being able to be successful along that path? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. This is a great question. And it also reminds me of what you talked about earlier about like learning on someone else's dime. Obviously that's not how I saw my relationships with my clients, but being a business manager was so So I can't stress how incredibly helpful it was for me to build my own business because I got to learn from so many different, it's like, imagine you are behind the scenes of 20 clients who are in different industries, who have different size businesses, different types of products, different types of processes, different types of team member setups. Like you are behind the scenes of all of these businesses and you see exactly what is working and what is not. And you see exactly why something is not working big time and why this launch failed and why that hire was bad and why um, that project didn't get completed on time or within budget. You see all of that. You get all of that data. And that builds your intuition when you build your own business. And it, I honestly think that the reason I made six figures in my first year 
with my course business was because I worked as a freelancer, uh, as a business manager for the five years prior. Like no way, no way could I have made six figures in my first year. Like that was so much knowledge that I took from all my clients, like all the good stuff, kept note of like, okay, here are all the biggest mistakes I've seen them make. Um, I'll make sure to just be hyper aware of those things. And then I hit the ground running with uh, my business and I just like picked all the right things, right things that I saw them do. Obviously still made mistakes and everything, but definitely made, I would say like 90% less mistakes than I could have. Yeah. And you, you even mentioned, um, and I saw in your videos and stuff, you've done course launches prior to ever doing your own. And like, that's such a unique thing. Like everyone that's an entrepreneur usually has so many firsts and you were able to avoid so many of these firsts because you had the ability to, yeah, I know what it's like to hire somebody. I know what it's like to manage a team. I can completely understand how to, you know, go into a situation and build a course, help make sure everything looks good, the curriculum is good, and then launch it and then ensure that, you know, the community is doing well and that everyone's happy and satisfied. Like that wasn't like your first rodeo when you first had to launch your course. Like it's so intriguing because like so many people don't get that opportunity. Yeah, it's such a life hack, honestly. Like if you want to build a business, go work for the type of person that has the business you want first. Like it is invaluable to see behind the scenes what the big picture looks like, what the system looks like, what the processes look like, how the product fulfillment looks like, because there's so much more stuff than you could possibly ever think as everyone's like, Oh, it's so easy to make passive income business. First of all, it's not second of all, there's so much more that you're not seeing on the back end. It's better to be prepared and better to have the right expectations if you want to build that type of business. Um, so absolutely. Yeah. So I actually worked as a project manager for a course creation agency. So we shipped courses for the agency's clients. So I saw that process and then I worked with a lot of course creator businesses. Cause that was like, my favorite niche. I loved working with female course creators. So I worked with them. I saw exactly how they set up their course, biggest like issues that they had with students, biggest issues they had with like tech and everything. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to do it, you know, in this specific way. So yeah, huge, 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 huge. Uh, that gave me huge, a huge advantage to starting my own business. And I'm sure that niche is also growing so much because everyone wants to have an info product yeah. these days. Everyone wants to have yeah. you know, that, that transformation versus like, yeah. oh, I have to sell a $5 or $20 product. It's like this is brutal. Um, and, and there's yeah. the membership courses too that exist and like where they give constant yeah. content. But like, yeah, I yeah. don't know. It's just so interesting that you, yeah. whether it's because you were interested in it, but you, you picked gold in a way. Yeah, I I have a lot of thoughts about the course industry. I think I've actually made videos about this. Like it is, yeah, it bothers me a lot when beginners are, I, because I think a lot of these big course creation gurus, they target specifically beginners when they talk about like, everyone can make a course, you should make a course, it'll be six figures, passive income, all this stuff. Um, they target beginners because beginners have the least amount of context about how much work it actually is to build a pass passive income business. Like I have a passive income business. Like I always say it with quotation marks because it is nowhere near passive. Okay. There's like no real such thing as passive. It's like, sure. Some things are like passive ver, um, but there's no real such thing as passive. And they have a huge incentive to make you think it's easy peasy and that you're going to make a crap ton of money because they want you to buy their $5,000 program. So like, you know, I find it really shady and everything. I think it's very stupid. I think everybody who like, I think it's stupid of them, of course. I think everybody who has a bit of experience in online business knows how much work a course actually is to create. And 
is a lot more hesitant and more skeptical about all of this like free money kind of stuff. So I think that's why they target beginners. Um, when you are 21 years old and you have no work experience, do not make, in my opinion, a passive income business. Like I have a very strongly worded video about this as well, but like when you're 21, no work experience, don't make passive income, stop drop shipping, do not make an online course, do not start an Etsy shop. Like these people that are telling you to do this, they are only giving you like the absolute top, like silverest of linings. It is so hard. Like I have friends who run Etsy shop. I have friends who run profitable Etsy shops. I have friends who do profitable drop shipping. I have so many friends who have seven figure online courses. I know basically every type of passive income business model and they are not run. They are not started 99% of the time by beginners for a very important reason because beginners don't understand how much work it is, how much risk it is, and they fail so much because of that. And I think that's super unfair. If you're 21, no work experience, start freelancing, do it for like two, three years, freelance for the types of businesses you wanna start, gather that experience, take notes, learn everything about what they're doing, and then create your own unique business in two years. I promise you will be set up for so much more success if you do that than if you just try to struggle with creating a course business without fully understanding the context of everything that's required to make that sustainable and make it profitable for you. That's my like super spicy, controversial opinion. <laughs> totally. Do you see a difference? Because I'm sure you've worked with both of the, the high ticket model versus like the opposite end which is build community and build memberships that they they like you they know they'll learn and then they stay for a long time like have you seen a difference in both so the difference between like audience first or product first or do you mean yeah just because like, like end versus low end yeah because like mm -hmm. I, have, I have a mentor he um his product is like 200 a, $200 a year or so if you buy in full but like 20 bucks a month if you do monthly and he makes like a couple million dollars a year versus I also um, have people that I've interviewed and, and mentors whatever that do purely high ticket and do really well but make you less than that guy and it's like a totally different avenue because one is you have to have mass amount of people that enjoy your product and but you don't have to take sales calls you don't have to worry about that stuff and the other is like you have to have a lot of team members, you have to be very much talking to clients and it's a lot more involved even though you have the, the high ticket like positive side. Yeah, they're just different business models. You know, one is like uh, when you go low ticket, it's really just about volume. Like uh, I actually heard this from a mentor, um, Julie, she was basically saying if you're doing low ticket, you're in the business of lead generation and traffic because you need to be so good at traffic and funnel like conversions and everything to run a successful low ticket offer because your average order value is so low. If you run high ticket, you are in the business of more like high touch relationships, right? Like you really don't need that many people. You, it's not really about volume. Like you could have three people pay you 10K a month and you could be set. Um, so I think it's like very different games to play. It's like one is like traffic, you know, that's like you need to be super good at like uh, Facebook ads, Instagram ads, you need to be like the person that's optimizing a data person. Um, this is all uh, stuff that I'm learning from my mentor. So I, I want, I don't want to take credit for any of this, but um, her name is Julie Soyan, by the way. And um, so, yeah, so I think it's like, which game do you want to play? Do you want to play the game of like networking with really high, high net worth individuals and like trying to get, you know, these people through an application and like establish value and authority to just a few people? Or do you want to play the mass volume game where you have to build less trust, sure, but still you have to build a little bit of trust with tons of people um, 
So yeah, I feel like it's not like good or bad. I think you just need to know the expectation that's going to be on you as a CEO. If you pick a certain product type and pricing um, point, price point to to play it well. I will say my personal preference and what I also talk to people that like I coach sometimes in other people's masterminds um, is it's much better to just have an ecosystem where you have different price points, different products that meet people wherever they are at. Like your target audience is not a static individual, right? Your target audience is an evolving person who is on different stages of their journey. And so if you have something that just matches them at every step of their journey, you know, it's like an ascension model, a value ladder, lots of different names for it. I think that is the most robust, most diversified kind of business model you can run. So that, that's my personal opinion on the best one. <laughs> Hey, sorry to interrupt. If you listened this far, I truly appreciate it. If you could do me a favor, please share the podcast however you found it, whether it was on social media, through a friend, or even myself. It would mean the world to us if you've been enjoying the episode. Take a few seconds just to share it. Enjoy the rest of the show. And then in your opinion, because you've been through so many launches, I've seen people, you know, that are a couple years older than me try to launch products or courses and do okay. Some, you know, crash and burn and others that are older. I'm like, Oh, how'd they do that? Or like, what, what did I not see that like didn't go well almost. And I'm very curious of your, from you being in the experience, like, Oh man, this launch didn't go well. Um, is it all dependent on the launch? Can you be successful on not a good launch and then kind of string along by and then grow from there? Like how does that all work? Um, from your knowledge and what you've been through? Yeah. Um, yeah, I so in one mastermind that I coach, I do a lot of launch coaching. What I normally say for launches is there's no such thing as failure in launching. There is only data. So like, especially your first few launches, like your first few launches, this is what I always tell them, like, it's not about making money. If you're so focused on making money in your first launches, you're never going to be long-term successful. Your first few launches are just about data. You need to gather data about what is going on um, with your people and like where they're at, what what is going on like in their lives? Are they interested? Is your product, all of this stuff. So like, I think launches are just data. That's like a big mindset shift that I try to tell clients. Another thing that I think a lot of people forget is like most of launching is not about open cart. Most of launching is about pre-launch. Pre-launch is I would say 90%, 95% of what determines whether a launch is successful or not. Pre-launch is like super important, number one, validation of product so many people just skip that they just make whatever they think is interesting and then they're like okay here it is and then everyone's like what's that and they're like oh it's this thing isn't it cool and they're like wait what you know so like validation so important you need to make sure people actually want what you are creating ideally before you've created it ideally before you finish creating it so that's what i did with my course i beta launched it pre-sold it um, before i started recording it validate your product and then the second part is like this big pre-launch period launching is like I said, data and data, is, it's just about numbers, right? Like if you, and a lot of people don't talk about numbers because that makes them nervous. But like, I actually think if you look at the numbers, it, it takes so much of the emotion out of it of like, oh no, I failed. What if people like I've been rejected, all this stuff. It's like launching is about numbers on average in, in the industry, people convert, let's say two to 3%, right? So that means if you have a hundred people that see your offer, two to three people might buy. That's 100 people that need to land on your sales page. Now, let's say you run a webinar. Let's say average webinar opt-in is like 30%. I'm not gonna be able to do all this math on the go, but let's say average webinar opt-in is 30%. Let's say average people who show up to the webinar 
And then let's say average of those people that actually make it to the sales page, I don't know, a small percentage. So you need to multiply that percentage all the way through your launch. And then you need to see how many people you need to funnel in through the top to get to this goal you have. So many people are just like, I want six figure launch. It's like, okay, if your course, let's say is a thousand dollars, let's say, and a, a, a six figure launch would be what? A hundred people, right? <laughs> yeah, hundred yeah, people, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So a hundred people through all of that math might be, you need, I don't know, like thousands and thousands of people to see and land on your webinar opt-in page. Right. And then you can work backwards from there. Like if you run Facebook ads, like how much does it cost per lead and stuff like that? And then you can start to see how much these big launches are spending to getting the, these like tens of thousands of people through the top of their webinar launch, for example. So like launching is about numbers. So do not take it personally. If one person buys or two people buy, if a hundred people hit your sales page, then that is as expected. Right. So like you need to understand the numbers. You need to understand the average conversion rates. You need to understand how much traffic you need at the top of your launch pre-launch in the lead generation phase to get to the goal that you want. So yeah, I have a lot to say about launches, but I guess that those would be the most important things. It's like most of the launch is in the pre-launch. You need to validate your product, super important. You need to know the numbers of the launching process. And then yeah, like treat launching as, as data. Like you need to understand what's going wrong. If you have a failed launch, you need to understand why, like you need to talk to your customers, you know? Yeah. And then in terms of when you were more starting out as a DBM, when you were introduced to say like a new skill, like when you were doing your first launch or your first major project, were there different expectations of like, Hey, it's your first time. Like you just try your best. Like how did, how did that, how does that work? Cause someone adds more to your plate. And of course you might feel competent. You might feel like you can do pretty well based on the skills, you know, but how do you like set the expectation of like, Hey, if this, like, cause the visionary is like, if things fall on them, they can take accountability. But when you have someone who's your right-hand individual and you give them a ton of responsibility, like that's, of course you have to trust them, but it's still a gamble in terms of like, who knows if this person, yeah. depending on who it is, is going to do really well at what um, is being asked of them. Yeah. Yeah. So that's also why I say VAs are such good fits to be business managers because they most of the time have already seen a few launches behind the scenes and they get how this launch for this client for this product works and they have that experience. And a lot of times VAs do a lot of, I would say, mini management for launches as well. Like they're making sure things aren't breaking in the back end, that emails are going out and stuff. So I think that is a great way. Another thing is that that is also why I think freelancing for small businesses that you believe in is such a good thing to do for your growth because if you believe in them, you know, obviously there are like lots of quantitative things you can look at, like potential of their market and like what their product pricing is, have they validated it? I do like a little checklist before I work with somebody in my mind. Um, but if I really believe in them and I'm like, this person's really gonna go somewhere, getting in with them when they're a small business, when they're just like one or two other people, and then being like, I know you're growing, let me grow with you. I will learn with you. I'll be invested with you. Um, then you can start handling like the small launches, right? Like maybe the first launch is just, I don't know, 20 people join. Great. Next launch, maybe then it's 40 people. Maybe then it's a hundred people. So like, I would say if you're not super experienced, not super confident, first of all, that's super normal. Everyone starts there. Don't go pitching seven, eight figure businesses that have seven, eight figure launches. Like start with the smaller ones, kind of like test it out, get comfortable. Um, see how it works behind the scenes and then grow slowly from there, like step-by-step. Step. It's never just like suddenly you're managing a seven-figure launch. Like that doesn't happen. 
Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's not like, yeah, you don't stumble into that role. You don't stumble into that situation. Like, oh, shoot, yeah. I'm managing hundreds of thousands of dollars and I'm building an evergreen webinar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's so awesome. <laughs> I, I want to talk about some of your choices with your business because um, we talked a lot about being a DBM and like the, the dichotomy back and forth between DBM and the starting your own company. But in terms of when you decided to launch, you decided to say, hey, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to create a YouTube channel. I'm going to start this and, and, and see where it goes. How did? Why did you make the decision to go Evergreen Webinar to go? Because I looked at some of the, like your offers to go for like the price point you did. And what made you decide like, okay, I want to do semi-high ticket sales of, of this nature, but I, you didn't really necessarily want to have any sales a sales team or necessarily do the sales calls yourself at least in that offer of course you've done more mentorship that might could be higher level but in terms of your the main thing you've done what was like the decision making for you of like this is what's right for me and right for what i'm trying to build yeah yeah that's a really good question i think it's also a good time to be talking about that for me right now because um when i first started my business i did everything that was strategically the best decision based on everything I saw from my clients. You know, I saw every type of funnel, application funnel, webinar funnel, SLOs. I saw everything. I was like, I, especially in the beginning, cause I was full-time freelancing. So I was like, I'm going to build this course business. It needs to be fully automated because I don't have time to run a course business and freelance full-time. So I was like, I'm going to run as automated, as automated, as systematized of a business as I can. That's what I'm going to, that was my intention in building the business up, which I think was, a, which I recommend to most CEOs is like build the business as if it, as if you do not exist, because you can always insert yourself back into the parts of the business that you want to be in. But if you, if the whole business hinges on you and you showing up, I mean, it's like, I don't remember who said it. It's like, if that's the case, like you have a job, you're not, you don't have a business, you know? So I was like, okay, I need to make decisions so that they, things don't depend on me, that everything's as systematized as possible. That's why I had the webinar funnel. Webinar funnel was by far what I saw based on everything I saw the most strategic at the time, um, like pump money into it via ads, uh, webinar converts people, uh, into the program like that. That was like, I was like strategically, that's the best option. It's what I saw best work best with my seven figure clients and stuff. Um, so that I was like, I'm going to do that. So that's why I set up things the way I did in the beginning. It was just very strategic. So like first it's like, what's most strategic, what's most efficient and to what is going to make sure it's not dependent on me, which is why I didn't build coaching calls into my program, which is why I was like, I'm never, I don't want to do sales calls. They make like, uh, that's just not scalable, you know? So that, those are the reasons I thought about when I was starting my business. Obviously things are now different. So like now I'm like thinking more um, about how I actually want to do things. And that's why last year I did kind of like a big overhaul of like my marketing thing. I wrote like a marketing manifesto of like, how do I actually want to market? Not just what is best based on everybody else in the industry and what's most strategic, what's most efficient. How do I want to market based on my own values and what what's going to feel right for me? Um, and then I wrote down a bunch of things and started reworking tons of my marketing uh, funnels and like uh, front end stuff to match this manifesto to make it feel like this is right for me. So like yeah, two stages, you, I guess. You had the foresight and the bird's eye view to, to plan for longevity. Because having worked in the back end of a couple of different course businesses and, and being a consumer of it as well. A lot of those individuals are really good at a skill, 
somehow got a really big following by doing something that people enjoyed or whatever. And then they were like, I think I can monetize this or help people make this transformation. And so they weren't able to see like, oh, this is what the the two to three or four year version of this is. They're like, oh, I want to have a launch. And then in six months, I'll have this many students. And in a year, I'll have this many students. That's what they see, like front to back. Like that's all that they can envision. But you had the foresight to say like, hey, I don't want to, because you've seen people build a headache for themselves. You've seen people do something. You're like, ooh, that that takes a lot. That, that was a lot of work for me. I had to do a lot to manage that that thing versus like, oh, this is the one that maybe was easier, didn't take as much time. Uh, so it's it's so intriguing because it like it's looking more and more like just a, such a smart way um, to go about learning the, the back end of the business. I'm like, oh, it's genius. Like regardless if you knew it or not, I'm like, this is so awesome. I'm just so intrigued by this stuff. Yeah. How, this is more of a personal question. Your evergreen webinar. So I went through it. When was that recorded? I'm curious. And then how long does it take you to script, build, and then record and edit that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that you went through the webinar funnel because I'm pretty sure we've removed as many links as we can to the webinar funnel. So I'm very curious where you found the link. Um, but I recorded that in 2020. Okay. It's been like three years. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's still full fresh. Yeah. Yay. But yeah, I I have a whole new thing now. But um, yeah, the webinar funnel, webinar funnels take way longer than people think. People are like, it's just a quick one hour thing. You know, I'll also say webinar funnels are a different game now than they were in 2020. The audience has matured. People are way more aware of what a webinar entails and are very sensitive to the fact that a lot of webinars end in like a mega pitch fest. Um, And so webinar, this is across the industry from what I've seen from my business friends, from clients and all that stuff. Webinar watch rates are down. Webinar conversion rates are down. um, Opt-in is down. So I will say that like, and it is a ton of work. So the process of, creating the webinar. (laughs) The webinar structure I developed myself based on everything I saw from my clients and also a bunch of own research that I did from people who were running webinars that I really liked. So I was like, okay, we need to like bring people through a transformation, meet them where they're at, and then slowly work them through. I actually have, I'm like, I've actually walked through my webinar. I actually walked through my webinar funnel in my course as well. So I'm sure I explained it better there. But yeah, it's like this whole process of like leading them through the beliefs of like from where they're at to um, where you want them to hopefully go if they're a good fit for your program um, and breaking down every step of the way. So a lot of people do different structures. They do like three secrets to XYZ, three myths to XYZ, three steps to XYZ. Um, that's normally good because three is quite digestible for people. You don't want to leave people feeling overwhelmed. So like that's the bulk of the webinar. The webinar, I would say, takes t- takes me like weeks. It's it, And I'm, I work quite quickly, so I'm always like, oh, it'll just take me a couple hours. It takes a really long time because there's so much psychology. There's like such a big sales psychology aspect to it where you're like, you can't give people too much, but you need to give them enough, but you have to tell them the right things in a way that shifts their beliefs. Um, there's like so much that goes into it. So like, yeah, it's like, I feel like you could talk for, I could talk for like two hours about webinars, but um, yeah, there's that aspect to it. And then there's everything else, right? There's like opt-in pages, um, emails. You need to like have the email sequence follow up. You need to set up all the tech for that. You need everything else for your course, basically set up sales pages, order fulfillment, check out all that stuff. Um, and then you need to 
yeah, think about the traffic strategy of like how you're going to get people through this webinar. Because again, like it's all about the math. Like if webinar conversion rates on average due to 3%, how much are you willing to pay to bring people in? What's the price point of your product? Does it make sense? Are you going to generate ROI? It's like big picture, but yeah. Gotcha. For, for your own research, I found it on your YouTube channel on the banner in the corner. Mm. It has the free class link still. Ah, um, that's and really I saw good that to know. <laughs> and I was like, clicked it. And I was like, oh, this is cool. So yeah, so it still yeah. exists there in case you wanted to, to tweak some things or look at Amazing. it. That's super interesting. And Will then, do. so you, so you've learned because of the journey that you've been on, you've learned various funnels or dealt with various funnels. Do you have preferences yeah. um, as someone who wants to possibly get into the whole DBM stuff in the future, but then also I'm just intrigued with like the funnel side of the business. Like what have you seen personally in terms of what's working right now for I guess, info products and then what you find mm-hmm. like, found the easiest to learn or the easiest to grasp or, and it's not easiest. Isn't always the right way to say it, maybe simple or like the yeah. one that you felt was the most applicable currently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of things are shifting right now. Like I'm noticing a lot of things in terms of like, you know, Gen Z is coming up. It's, they're like so sales sensitive. They're super sensitive to like any trace smell of like a a product a business and everything so i think there's a lot of adjustments we're gonna have to make um that's like part of the marketing manifesto i rewrote last year is and a lot of this is like i'm sure you know seth godin like seth godin has always been preaching the exact right thing he like talks about the foundation everyone's talking about like tactics and strategies on top you need the right foundation first of all um you need to have the right understanding of what you're trying to do with your business when it comes to sales and marketing um before you even talk about funnel stuff right before you talk about like the technicalities of that and so part of my marketing manifesto overhaul last year was like the only thing we're optimizing for the only thing that matters, the only goal we have with all marketing sales content is to build trust. And that is the lens that I look at everything with. I think, does this build trust? Does this give my person power? Does this uh, give my person back control, security? Um, every, everything revolves around them. And I think that's a big misconception people have about like funnel stuff and also a huge misconception I had, which I had to unlearn, which is like, people do not orientate themselves around your seven day funnel people have their own lives going on they are not it's not up to them to revolve around your funnel setup like it is up to you to revolve around them which is also why now so much i'm thinking about like instead of like a seven day kind of thing i'm like what does it look like to extend that out like the buying cycles taking longer now people have more options um what does it look like to have a 90 day funnel um what does it look like to have a 90 day ecosystem for people that's like something else i i learned um from another mentor that i really like his name is rice shorts he talks about how a funnel is like always very linear like people assume people are going to be like step one step two step three step one i'm going to watch your webinar step two i'm going to read this email then i'm going to read your next email then i'm going to read your next email and like that's not reality like people do not consume content in a linear way you know, and I, I know this true for myself too. Like when I watch a cool video from somebody, I'm like, ooh, I like open all their links. I like read this blog post, check out another video, check them out on Instagram. I like opt in for something, read that email. Then I go watch their masterclass. Then I maybe buy a small product. Like people consume it how they consume it, whatever fits them right now. And so I think instead of like a linear funnel, you need to be thinking about how can I create an ecosystem that meets somebody no matter where they're at? How can I give them different forms of content, different structures, different messaging, different belief shifting in two to three different ways 
so that they have those different touch points with me, whether that's like maybe a podcast, maybe like you have YouTube videos, maybe then you also have like an email series or like maybe you have, um, I don't know, a few really high value blog posts and like a really cool lead magnet or something like that, like different touch points for people so that they can immerse themselves in your world in the way that that gives them still, they retain the control over this instead of forcing them through like a, I'm going to send you a sales email every single day for the next seven days. And you need to buy within seven days, because if you don't, then you lose these bonuses and this discount, you know, I, so that's like a big shift I'm doing, uh, personally. <laughs> yeah. I really like the, the Hermosi method, which is just give everything away for free. And then you'll have so much customer trust. And, and I mean, you know, he's working with people that his client is like making, $3 million a year. And so he's trying to just get people to that point. And so it's his incentive to teach people the beginning of the journey. Um, but if he released like a lower ticket offer, I know so many of my friends would buy it because they've, he's helped them so much just for free with all the stuff that he's put out there. Um, and just how, tra and how transparent he is. Like he used to have in his bio, I have nothing to sell you. And he realized he was like, oh, I saw something for 99 cents. Technically, let me take that out. I made a whole announcement. Like, I'm sorry, guys. We're like, dude, like, we're fine. We love you. Like, it's okay. And so his ability to um, give away, not just give away for free, but it's really, like you mentioned, the trust building and the fact that I know when it's right for me, if they're selling something, I'll get it. And so I'm not worried about him hard selling me or somebody hard selling me in that way. And so... It's and like even with your content, I was like, oh, this person actually cares about me getting better. They don't care about me learning just enough to then want to have the webinar, or want to learn more in a course, where they withhold information. You're giving everything you can in just a basic YouTube video that's like you know ten to twenty minutes long versus a structured course that is a curriculum because they're very inherently different things. And I think looking at it in that lens of Maybe you're gonna have to become a personality. Maybe you're gonna have to become a person that you know you're a content creator now, which is like just kind of a bare minimum in a lot of ways. But it's it's that trust that the products that I've bought the most are from people that genuinely I can see are trying to help people regardless of if they're paying. And then on top of it, say if you really want help though, this is the route to do it. Yeah, exactly. It's it's really about trust, and you know a lot of the. And I think that's why it's so hard for a lot of people because when your first incentive is to make money, it is very hard to come from a place of, I wanna build trust because the trust is already like iffy. Like you're only, like imagine like, my only goal here was to get you to buy my course. Like you would be like, ooh, like you would be skeptical, you would be defensive and stuff like that. So like my goal for my business is not to get every single person to buy my course. My goal for my business is to help you move forward in whatever way you want, whether that's freelancing, whether that's DBM, whatever, it doesn't matter. And if it's a good fit for you to join my course, it's a good time for you. You have the right amount of income that it wouldn't put you out. It wouldn't bankrupt you or something like that. Um, if that is the case, then great. I would love to have you. But my goal is never to get every single person into the program because that's also not good for me. Like, I don't want every single person like that's not pre-qualified in my program, right? I only want people who are good fits. And I think when you come from that perspective, which is also a big thing I tell freelancers as well. Um, a lot of freelancers have this like, as I had this too when I first started, I was so desperate to land clients. I was like, what can I say to convince them to hire me? What can I say to like, what's the right answer here? And that's like the wrong approach. That's like this like nervous, desperate energy. You need to come from the perspective of, we're on the same side. Let's figure out if we are both a good fit for each other. Let me listen first and hear like 
what exactly it is you need help with. And then I'll try to see if I genuinely am the best person to help you with that. If yes, I will let you know. If no, I'm gonna say no. And that's how you build trust, right? Trust is like, I want the best for you regardless of what the outcome is for me. And to be honest, like that's also better for you as the freelancer. You don't want to work with clients that you can't help. If they say, this is what I want. And you say, yeah, 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 no problem, no problem. I can do that. And you can't do it. Like you're just setting yourself up for failure, right? So like coming from this perspective of like honesty, we're on the same side. Let's figure out what's the right fit for everybody. I think like that's always the best approach to sales and marketing. Completely. Like I, I had a sales call yesterday where the lady was asking tons of questions, super curious, wanted to learn and was just like soaking up information. And I was spent more time with her, like explain some things and her to help her give just like free information. And then when she finally asked about price, she was like, honestly, that's really not my budget right now because of X, Y, Z. And like, instead of just being like some people, you know, give a price objection is because they don't trust the product or whatever yet. And so you have to walk through if that's an insecurity, if it's really an actual problem in their current life situation. And from this individual, she really just said like, like Jack, like this sounds all great. And I was like, she gave me a whole explanation. I go, Hey, like, don't worry about it at all. Like, I know that if it's the right time, you'll come to me. Like I, because I know that I gave her so much information. She was like, she's like, Hey, I just appreciate you taking, you know, like 30 minutes when you didn't have to, um, to like explain things to me. And I was like, of course, that's what I'm here for. And then I have no sweat on my back and I'm like, okay, that person didn't buy, but in, you know, six months, they're like, oh, I had a really good month. I want to start also doing this thing. Um, let's let's go talk back to Jack or reach out. Or I follow up and say, hey, is it a good time? Or, or is it still, um, has anything changed recently? Like that's the person that's like, oh, like so great to talk to you again. Like I actually had a really good month and um, thanks for all the, the tips you gave me. And then they're excited to move forward because you've already given them something that's positive versus I, because your pet peeves with like the course industry is my pet peeves with like sales it's like there's a difference between walking an objection down to see if it's an insecurity and something that's a limiting belief versus trying to get somebody to just think that it's the right decision when it's not and then just putting their dollars into that. It's like, I'm like, no, I don't want you to buy it if it's going to like hurt you long term in terms of where you're going. Like, it's just stupid. Exactly. And a side bonus to that is in the next six months, even though she's not prepared, if anybody asks them like, hey, do you know somebody who blah, 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 she's going to be like, oh my gosh, go talk to Jack. He was incredible. Like he helps me so much. Like that is how you get referral business in freelancing as well. Like just because one person doesn't have the budget right now doesn't mean they don't know other business owners who might have budget and they're going to refer you versus somebody who was like, guilt tripping you about not having the money or like maybe you can I don't know take out a credit card and like you know this kind of stuff so yeah trust is like needs to be the foundation of everything I think yeah some of those like the reputation stuff can spread like a wildfire because I remember there was certain sales courses that I was like okay I want to learn I want to invest in this so I get serious with it and so I looked at my options and just talking with guys like oh don't buy that that's like terrible like I, I had a really bad experience they they could have not told me that, um, but they had enough of a bad impression um, comparative to where their dollars went to where they felt the need to express to me without even me asking about what course training to do. I'm like, hey, like, have you had any experience with like, buying a course? Like, oh, yeah, just don't do this one. And like, oh, okay, cool. Sounds good. And that person, you know, could be good for some people for all I know, but because of the, the personal anecdote with somebody I trusted, I'm never going to... Um, have credibility in that product, which is something that like people take for granted um, in, in many capacities, like the the people that just launch the most convenient offer for them versus the most convenient offer for everybody involved. 
Yeah, it's it's a huge thing also about the short game, like the short-term game versus the long-term game. So many people in this industry play the short-term game. They're like, I want to make the money now. I want to do the most profitable thing right now. And that's why they feel pushy about sales because they're like, I need to make that money now. Um, and so many people are hesitant about like this reputation stuff, this trust stuff, because trust takes time to build. But if you're building a long-term business, if you want a business that's going to last five to 10 years, you need to invest in that now, because like you said, that course uh, that wasn't recommended by someone, that's never going to last five to 10 years because the more they run, the more sales they make. Everyone's just going to tell everyone else, like, don't buy that course. Don't buy that course. Don't buy that course. Like eventually you're going to run yourself out of business if you don't play the long game. Um, so yeah, I, I think you need a mixture of both. I think you need short-term strategies, but I think also very importantly, you need long-term strategies. Definitely. Definitely. In terms of content creation, because you mentioned you're kind of, I'm sure part of your your new marketing manifesto includes how you're going about like the the planning and the execution of, you know, said content. What do you think has changed? Because I've 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 seen the a little bit of the transformation or the the ways your videos have altered, and that you go you kind of go back and forth between different topics. What are you hoping to to do moving forward with that? Um, and what can people kind of look forward to to viewing? Yeah, big shift I'm doing right now is into quality instead of quantity. So when I first started YouTube, I was like, I just need to get videos out because I a big weakness of mine is I am I have perfectionistic tendencies. So if I'm allowed to, I will ruminate on something forever and not publish it. And that's really, really, really just so toxic for uh, a business. So I was like, I'm just going to pump videos out. I'm going to do like two videos a week for a year and we'll see how that goes. I made that one year commitment to myself. So I did two videos a year, uh, a week for a year. And then I was like, okay, let me keep this going. I can do one to two videos a week for another year. I learned so much. I took a lot of YouTube Uh, I took like one or two, I did like a YouTube workshop, YouTube course. I did a YouTube accelerator coaching program during that time as well. And I learned so much, like an incredible, it blew my mind how much there is to YouTube videos. And, And at the rate I was going like one to two a week, it takes so much time. I couldn't implement all of these new things I was learning. So I was like, okay, let me just like slow down. Um, I have a hundred videos on YouTube. People can watch it. They're good videos. I spent a ton of time on them. They can watch them if they want to, but now I'm going to slow down and just take it one video at a time. And I'm going to really focus on implementing everything I'm learning to create really as good of a video as I can. Because I think when you're in the content creation hamster wheel, I always call it, you're just like always focus on the next video. Like you don't really have time to think about too much. You know, it's like, you have the idea and you're like, okay, the idea is good enough, like next. And then you like write the script and then you're like, okay, the script is good enough next. And then you film it, which is fine when you're just trying to get the reps in. But I think I'm at the stage now where I'm like, no, I want to take an extra day and like think about the idea. I want to take an extra day and think about the script. Like one of the biggest things I learned about YouTube is that like the idea is everything. And most people don't even think about the idea. Like most people just like, okay, I'll start writing the script now. Like, you know, I um, was learning from Patty Galloway. I don't know if you know him, but he talks about how like, they have like hundreds of ideas and hundreds of ideas get whittled down into like two to three ideas into one idea. Like the filtering process, like there's so much volume of ideas and then they pick one idea and then they make that video. And before I was just like, I come up with 10 ideas, I make 10 videos, you know? Like the idea is so responsible for the potential of the video that you need to spend way more time on the front end of like the idea and the packaging of your video. So like, that's just one example of like how I want to try to shift into quality is like take my time on the things that the 80, 20, like the things that really make a big difference um, moving forward. 
I was listening to a, a Mr. Beast video yesterday. I don't know if you're familiar with Colin and Samir on the YouTube channel, um, but they are all about like the creator economy and for people that are listening that don't know. And Mr. Beast was saying how ten a 10% increase in quality of video and like in your your data and your like statistics of like watch time and click rate, whatever, results in a 4X increase of viewership usually. And so it's like not like a an apples to apples of you get 10% more click-through engagement, you get 10% more views. And so he was like, he when he does mentorship, he's like, focus on just making better videos, even if that takes you longer, because it's better to, he said, it's better to do a couple good videos a year that are really good versus dozens of videos. Like he said, a couple good videos that maybe get millions of views versus like dozens of videos that get thousands of views like tens of thousands whatever he's like because you just need to make one good video and that will have an exponential increase on your viewership and i thought that was so interesting because nowadays people especially in the podcast room are like i need to have a clip a day i just need to do this i need to pump out content when when really at least in my eyes in the way of i've been doing this for three years now um and it just came it started from a place of curiosity my goal is like well if i want to do this in 10 years how would i be planning for that it's like well i'd probably just focus on quality i'd probably focus on having the best conversations i think i can have versus just having one every day and and doing that sort of thing and so it's that that focus on longevity um from people like mr beast or tim ferris or uh hermosi that talk about like don't just plan the next move you're you're focusing on what you're doing for the future has really had a major shift, especially when you're younger, you just see tomorrow, you see next month and oh my gosh, I need, of course, to some degree, you need to make money, you need to do that. But that's what like, to your point, that's what things like freelance are for to get your feet wet in these different industries. It doesn't always have to be a permanent job or business that is going to make you money forever. Awesome. Well, Daya, just to wrap up, I've appreciated you, you know, giving me your time thus far. Um, we ask everyone in the podcast two different questions. The first one being, what are two to three pieces of content? Could be any medium, whether it's, you know, interviews, books, YouTube channels, uh, movies, whatever has had just like a major impact on you and kind of your development um, within this kind of world. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love to kind of get your take on that. Yeah, interesting. Actually, I don't know if this is like the best one. It's just the most recent one that really was incredible for me. Um, And everyone has told me to read this for like the past seven years. And I was like, I'm not reading that. That book is like way too old. Like it's not going to be relevant. That was my bad. Everyone should read this if they're curious about business. It's E-Myth Revisited. Have you read that? Mm Mm-mm. Oh, it's so, you should, it's so good. Oh my gosh. It's like one of the, I feel like it's like what everyone recommends. And I was like, that's stupid. I'm not reading that. It's like way too old, but it's so good. It's about entrepreneurship. It's about small businesses. It's about why most small businesses do not work. Um, I think there's just like a few core concepts in that book that really stuck with me. And I will definitely think about uh, moving forward in my business. So that's one. Um, there's just so many good resources. I feel like I've read so many good things recently too. Um, and then I'll just give you the most recent ones if that's fine. Cause I really can't think like- Yeah, that works, that, that works. Okay, cool. Um, the other book that I'm currently reading that is so good is um, Oversubscribed. I don't remember the author's name, but it's really good as well. 
it talks basically about how it basically talks about like supply and demand and like how it's very important when you run a business that your business is always more in demand than supply. And I think this is a book I personally just need to read in my current stage because it's something I've been thinking a lot about. And it's a lot about like how to create demand, how to, um, yeah, get people like lining up to work with you. Like how do you create that like tension and that like um, people are like, please, I just need to give you money. Like send me the checkout link. I've always been very curious about that because I have had those sales experiences in the past where I was like, just send me the checkout link. I need to buy. I'm so nervous. I'm not going to get into your program. And that's, and it's, it was really exciting for me to have that kind of sales experience. And I've always been curious about like, what are the details of like, or the technicalities of like crafting that kind of experience for other people. So, um, those are two things I'm reading, like my two most recent business books that I am loving. Awesome. And then the final question for you today is if you go back and give one piece of advice to, you know, that version of yourself that was just starting getting into Mm -hmm. freelancing, didn't really know much about the world. What would you tell her? Yeah. Yeah. So many things, millions of things, but, um, I would, if I could only tell her one thing, I'd probably just tell her like, um, just keep doing stuff, like just keep taking action. Like uh, a big thing I think that I would have told her is clarity doesn't come from planning. Clarity comes from action because that's a huge issue that I've always had. I'm a big planner. So like, I'm like, if I plan it perfectly, then, then I'll have clarity. If I organize everything perfectly, if I make the perfect plan, if I make the perfect system, then I'll be clear on what exactly I need to do. But like clarity doesn't come from that clarity comes from like you taking one step and then you're like oh i didn't know that before and then you take the next step and you're like oh yeah true and then you like take the next step and you're like oh that was a mistake like clarity comes from continuously taking action putting yourself out there um it doesn't come from sitting at home and thinking and planning and hoping that one day you will have a really successful business so like just take action it doesn't matter if you make a mistake it doesn't matter if it's messy it doesn't matter like just do stuff and i promise when you look back you'll be like oh it made sense that i did it this way you know even though it doesn't make sense while you're in it (laughs) that's awesome well dan thank you so much for coming on today and just providing so much value um and you know we didn't get tons into kind of the the overall day-to-day story of what you do but um just the fact that you're so open and honest about your experiences and what you've learned um i learned a lot today and i'm sure the listeners will will learn just as much if not even more um from everything that you've shared it's been truly a pleasure for something that especially i'm extremely interested in um so so thank you yeah thank you it's been really interesting for me too (laughs) all right that's it for today's episode of the project alchemy podcast as always guys peace